Hello everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of OT What's Your Focus with me, Farah Money. Now I realise for my regular listeners there seems to have been a pretty big gap between this episode and my last one. Well the main reason for that is that life is hectic right now. I'm on my final placement. At this point, I am four weeks from qualifying. Can't quite believe it. All being well, that is. And yeah, it's just been so full on. So apologies for those of you that might have been wondering, where's the episode, Farrah? What's going on? Today's episode is a great one. It is with Laura Dunger. She graduated from the University of Northampton in 2011 and Laura is currently completing her Masters in Advanced Occupational Therapy at the University of Salford and Laura spent most of her postgraduate experience working within a forensic CAM service and since 2018 she's actually had a unique role uh, where she's been employed as a CAMS OT working with children and young people who come into contact um, with Laura at the local acute hospital. Uh, These young people often experience significant physical symptoms such as not being able to move, eat, walk, they have significant fatigue or may have pain that doesn't have an obvious biological cause, but it's associated sometimes potentially with a psychological health issue. She also has the capacity to see young people where their mental and physical health is impacting on participation such as young people who have sleep disorders, significant obesity, chronic conditions and eating disorders. I enjoyed this talk with Laura because I think paediatrics per se is quite a popular choice for people when they're going into occupational therapy but it's it's interesting the more I speak to others about it and they say well I started off really wanting to do this and I ended up doing that and actually I really love it so I was keen to hear what Laura had to say it was a really interesting discussion I mean Laura is clearly a very experienced OT in her field and remit and uh, it's nice knowing now being so nearly qualified that there are these unique roles out there and OT's breadth is just huge so I hope you enjoy the show. Unfortunately, we did have a minor technical issue at the beginning, um, so it might just have one or two points at the start where we had a a couple of connection issues, but um, I've tried to smooth them out as best as I can. But as I let you know, regularly listeners, my tech skills, although they're improving with this placement, which hopefully I shall be telling you all about pretty soon, Um, But yeah, so hopefully it won't impact the episode too much. I hope you've all been keeping safe and well since the last episode. And uh, yeah, do do listen to the um, end note on this podcast episode today because I've left you a few bits of information about an exciting project that's happening next week on Thursday, the 1st of July, which is the annual conference. So yeah, enjoy the show. So welcome everyone. I'd like to introduce you to Laura Dunga, who we've got on the show today. 
And I want to say to Laura, welcome to OT, what's your focus? I want to know a little bit about you. So maybe you could start off today with how you came to occupational therapy as a profession and what inspired you to train as an OT? Sure. Um, so I trained mm, how long ago? It was over 10 years ago now. And I feel like um, it started from work experience at school, you know, as you do in like year 10. Um, and I went to an SEN type school and I think I really liked working with children I liked um I guess some therapeuticness about being in kind of that school environment and I remember looking up different kind of therapists um that worked in kind of schools and things like that and music therapy and drama therapy um and then seeing occupational therapy and um someone I I was brought up in a very rural part of kind of the Midlands and um, a lady in our village happened to be an OT just kind of assuming that I was going to fall on rotation I guess um, and not really paying that much attention to anything um, mental health wise until my final year and obviously as OTs we have to train in kind of a variety of different settings I really wasn't looking forward to my mental health setting um, and um, went into forensic cams for that final placement and it completely changed my view of anything that I'd learned so far um, I felt the most holistic I'd ever been it um, clicked with every value I had and really fell into place to me and that was our final term of um university before we graduated and from then on I kind of knew I wanted to work in mental health um, I knew I wanted to work in CAMS and kind of that was the story since then really um, and I have done that um, to some extent um, so I was really lucky that um, that was kind of just the placement that I got given um, and I remember really clearly at the time um being kind of a 20 year old and being probably a bit um argumentative with the university and saying that i didn't want to go on the placement um and then trying their hardest to say well you could do this placement instead and um kind of thinking about it and thought oh i don't really want to do um that one actually i'll, I'll go on to this cams placement and like i said completely changed my world um that was the last 12 weeks of my university experience well, don't you just love it when that happens, when you get a, a kind of a curveball thrown to you and you think, I'm not going to like this, I'm not going to gain anything, I think beneficial is going to come of it. And then actually it's the complete turnaround for you. I love it when that happens. Yeah, I honestly, um, every kind of term, every lecture we had on mental health, it was almost like I'd written it off before I'd got to it and um, how wrong I could have been. <laughs> I think it's quite common. I do think that's fairly common. There seems to be this divide, these two camps. You think you're going to love it or you're going to hate it. And actually, it shouldn't be that way. I, I put it down to myself being quite young. I went straight from college to university. And I oh, honestly okay. think if I'd had some experience before, it maybe would have been a bit different. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think I just got this very stereotypical view of an OT in uniform. And that's what I was going with. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So I've mentioned in the introduction that you currently work for CAMS and you did just obviously say then again, what actually is CAMS for the listeners that may not know? Maybe you could start with the acronym and give us a bit of an idea what CAMS is. Sure. So um, CAMS stands for Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. I think these days, lots of people refer to CAMS in lots of different ways. Um, so in CAMS, um, there used to be this kind of triangle so you've diff got different tiers of cams and it started with very um like health promotion um primary care 
type services and went up to more specialist services and tier four being um, any kind of inpatient service that was for children and adolescents focusing on, I guess, on mental health. Um, so you often hear or you might hear people say, oh, I work in a tier four service. And that's what that means. It just means it's an inpatient service. Um, and um, like I said, my kind of placement was in a tier four service. It happened to be in quite a, um, in mental health, you get different levels of security hospitals sometimes. So my um, placement was in a medium secure CAM service and you get low secure, um, you kind of get um, intensive care, psychiatric intensive care beds in CAMs too. Um, so you get lots of different kind of inpatient services that cost in that tier four, despite it being a very small point of the triangle. Um, so we used to kind of refer to it as the 4.5 it was the highest you know it was right at the top of the triangle there wasn't anything more um that kind of cams could offer i guess in that sense um of inpatient care um i currently don't work i guess in the triangle um, of cams instead i work in a kind of combination of pediatric and psychiatric services um so I guess if you look at the systems which I work in, it's a paediatric service, so it's not a psychiatric service whatsoever. Um, so we actually don't sit in that triangle of CAMS, but my job role is, I'm referred to as a CAMS OT, um, I identify as a CAMS OT in that sense. Um, and the networking I do and the CPD I do is often with OTs that are from CAMS. Um, so it's used more as a, I find this quite a lot, I guess, these days with role emerging placements and OTs working in a variety of different settings that you might have an OT who refers themselves as CAMS OT or goes to a training um, in that kind of bracket. But actually, it might be that they don't typically work in a CAMS service. It might be that they're using the skills that are, I guess, a mental health. They're thinking about children and adolescent mental health. Um, and it kind of sits in that, um, I guess, like um, person specification, you know, the skills and the training is very um, apply, it can apply to those kind of tier four services, um, which generally BAM5 roles tend to be in. Fab, so when you're talking about paediatrics and CAMS, what age group are we talking here? So CAMS, community CAMS kind of can go from lots of different ages. Um, I know an OT who did a training event with us for under five um, mental health and she was from a kind of CAM service. Um, so it can go really young. Um, community CAMS generally sees lots of children in primary and secondary school um, up to the ages of 18. However, lots of services are now expanding to 25. Um, and inpatient CAM services, generally there's a gap where usually referrals are kind of from age 13 to 18, 19th birthday. Um, so you don't see that many CAM services that offer kind of under 13 support. There are services, but they're very, very rare. Um, and my kind of caseload, I guess, in that sense, I see um, really young children, so I can see babies and work with families. So it's not uncommon that I have a child that's under six months old, um, all the way up to kind of 18 year olds, I would say. But generally, the age I see is between eight and 16. Um, and that's just because it fits with the service I generally work in more. So I identify with being with a particular ward and um, the ward usually admit children between 0 and 16. Um, so kind of that's where I sit. 
but there's lots of different CAM services out there and services for lots of different young people and children. Obviously, been doing this role for a little while. Would you be able to potentially talk the listeners through a day in the life of a CAMS OT? So, you know, starting from potentially like when you're waking up and heading off to work and to the point you're back, you know, heading back home again. Yeah, so um, I work in quite a large physical health hospital. So just to kind of set the scene. Um, so my day is very much, and, and I guess I'm a more senior member of staff in that team as well. So usually at the start of my day once got uniform on and got to work um, I'm lucky enough that I've got a car parking space at work so I can I don't have to kind of cycle in or do anything like that um, and got our uniform on usually it's about making sure the team are okay and kind of doing more management bits I guess of um, you know just seeing if we need to cover anyone if everyone's okay um, just making sure everyone's all right and that we don't need to change services and as a paediatric team we cover lots of different specialisms so because we're acute paediatrics we cover acute, acute neurology and um, we have um, an orthopedic service um, we also do outpatients and things like that as well as me being kind of in this very odd CAMS role in, in the midst of all of this so um, so not that I can help a lot of the time because it's not within my skill set, definitely not anymore, but um, I can provide support and think about how we kind of go about things from a service point of view. Um, and then I kind of tottle off over to the complete other side of the hospital to my um, the ward that I work on the most. And it's set up a bit like a house. We've got an upstairs where there's bedrooms and downstairs where there's a lounge and we have a dining room and a massive garden with a playground. Um, and I usually go and see the young people and to go and chill out with them for a bit. So it's not uncommon that I'll go and have breakfast with them in the morning. Um, I'm quite informal, I guess, in that sense, and it works with the ward I work on. So we go and have breakfast. Um, I might then go into school um, and talk to our teachers. So we have a primary classroom and a secondary classroom. Um, so I might go and observe a lesson and join in a lesson there. Um, and then most of the, the kind of the other time, my day's a combination of seeing young people one-to-one, um, and that can be within within the hospital um, or taking them out and going out in the community um, or kind of speaking to families or speaking to professionals, I would say. So it's usually involves speaking to a lot of people, whether they're young people or adults. Um, and um, a lot of that is because of the understanding and the complexity with the young people. So the young people I see um, present with lots of different physical symptoms or things that impact their um, bodies and physical, um, you know, the things that are quite visible sometimes um, in terms of symptoms and how it's impacting functioning. Um, but often it's because of a psychological cause. Um, so it can be lots of different types of symptoms. Um, I would say commonly it's things like constipation and soiling, um, vomiting. Um, we see quite a lot of in the hospital because often um, it's got to the point where they're quite a low weight. So therefore they need to come into hospital because of their, their weight. Um, and I would say not walking and mobility is another big thing. So lots of young people we see might have pain or fatigue um, or they just don't know what's happening to their bodies and they're just not working. Um, and therefore it's impacting school and lots of different things. Um, so, yeah, so 
a lot of the time it's talking to various people involved about understanding from a psychological point of view, but also from an OT point of view in the sense of how it's impacting and the distress and um, which bits we really need to target because sometimes there's no distress and it's not impacting function functioning and other times it is. It sounds absolutely idyllic. I'm, I've, I've sort of visualised it in my mind when you're saying you've got loads of land and we've got it set up like a house. It sounds absolutely dreamy. So is this an NHS service or is this private? No, so it's an NHS service um, a very, very long time ago. So we're talking decades ago. It was even more idyllic. Um, so it used to be properly in the countryside. I didn't work there then, but from what some of the staff talked to me about, um, it was completely in the countryside. It was a big manor house and they had a river at the bottom of the garden and they used to play with the young people in the river. <laughs> um, and um, lots of young people went there when there was this kind of combination of a, maybe a social situation and their health and I guess I see it very in like a PEO model you know there was there may be something that was um you know impacting function from a body point of view or a mind point of view um, the environment wasn't quite right at home or there might be other social things going on and actually that has just ultimately impacted on their functioning and and that was the aim of kind of the emissions that actually they wanted to um you know, increase people's functioning, give them value and meaning to what they were doing. And um, that was what it's all about and still is. Um, I work in MDT that definitely that's one of our big values altogether that, um, you know, we're working towards these young people having some of life and doing what they want to do and also what they need to do at, at, at kind of a teenage and school age. Um, I don't feel I can get away with young people saying it's always the things they um, need to do, um, sorry, want to do because, um, a lot of them don't want to do school and school is a big trigger and actually they do kind of need to do school to some capacity um so we always kind of put need and want i mean it's nice to hear you say about how you're framing that in a peo model because sometimes i think especially when you're a student it can be difficult to take that framework or the model and think to yourself but what does that mean in real life? What does that mean in practice? So the way you just sort of you you sort of separated that out, that was that was a really nice example of how your role as an occupational therapist is actually having an impact and your your thought process essentially that's going into that young person that you're obviously working alongside. So you've mentioned some really interesting and complex clinical areas um, with these young people you're working with, such as sleep and eating disorders. Would you maybe be able to expand a little on essentially how OT's role fits into the care and the therapy? So I'm quite interested when you mentioned earlier about, um, you know, you could be working with children as young as six months, potentially even younger than that. How would you go about essentially doing OT, if that's the right phrase, doing OT with these children that are potentially some being that young? But, you know, again, like you were saying, maybe the eight to 16 age range is the more you know common age of them you know across this across the range really um so i guess the younger ones it's often um it might be i guess the younger ones are six months um and so it's often a feeding thing so it might be for example that they've brought um we're quite lucky in the sense of our pediatricians and our pediatric 
specialty kind of parts of our MDT work across our ward, but also the acute wards. So these are young people who we might be familiar with anyway, um, because they have multiple admissions to an acute hospital, or they've actually spent quite a long time of their life in acute hospital. Um, so we kind of know about these young people anyway. Um, it's not, you know, it's quite rare that we don't know about them. Um, and I guess the reason why they might come to us and have that kind of more um, house homely feel is because they feel like it's more beneficial and more realistic. Um, and I would say a lot of the young people who are the kind of babies who come in, like I said, is, is a feeding thing. Um, so it might be that they've actually never weaned off kind of milk or anything like that and actually they've got an NG tube um, the parents might be really worried about losing that NG tube because it's actually kept them alive um, you know they might have been really poorly and um, you know that that helped save them at one point but it's just at, at that you know when they come to us it's not saving them anymore it's it's impacting you know they can't do certain things because of the tube or um, you know they're not learning to wean and we feel like they've got the skills and actually developmentally they need to do that um so a lot of the work we do is with the families um and i i feel like this is when we're in our element um doing things like this because as a service we're so unique in the sense of we can we can work with the families we can understand what impacts their functioning um what comes to mind is a family and um, this happened lots of times where um there's a history of for example an eating disorder in the family and um parents are really worried about their eating habits and maybe their current disordered eating impacting on the child so the child learning kind of that and that being brought up within the family and actually the ng tube has been really powerful in that because they've not had to do that um you know they just get fed purely by the, the tube um, and we can really help su support families psychologically and physically and help kind of really um, nurturing way support these families to to do those skills and to feel confident to wean their child um, so that's kind of the baby's end of it and I guess my role in that is sometimes um, vague and sometimes not <laughs> it really depends so um, I usually get called in and referred if there's a real challenge to that um, so just the nurturing approach alone isn't really helping or um, their concern developmentally um, so I can come in and assess. Um, it's not been uncommon that I might bring one of my physiotherapy colleagues along to help actually do a global kind of developmental assessment and actually get a real understanding of what are the barriers to, for example, weaning or walking or calling. And, you know, it can be a general um, looking at their functioning and what's expected at that age. Um, and I guess the older ones, it really depends on the symptoms, but generally what we're trying to do is, um, you know, have some understanding of what they think is, is impacting on their functioning. Um, I often do that by using um, a mixture of assessments and talking and building rapport. Um, so I quite often use um, the child occupational self-assessment. So it's called the COSA and there's an adult kind of more teenage version called the OSA. Um, which is just the occupational self-assessment. I find that really helpful. Um, I use a lot of a resource called Talking Mats. Um, so I use a lot of Talking Mats and have made my own Talking Mats to help in the context of the ward. Um, 
and we then practice those things so often we have an opportunity then to go and do those things and practice um and I would say general themes that the young people come up with is actually not to do with their symptoms at all. It's more to do with the fact that um, we get a lot of I don't have any hobbies and I have no interests. Um, so I feel really stuck. Um, we have a lot of young people who um, are really worried about school. Um, and actually, when we start assessing more or looking at that, actually, we might think that there's something there is barriers to school in terms of their development. So that could be, for example, a dyspraxia type um, picture. Um, quite often, it's kind of a mixture of a cognitive picture where it's not been picked up at school, but actually, they really struggle to learn and retain information from a processing point of view. And um, actually, it's just got to the point where it's easier to avoid school um, and not go to school rather than kind of be faced with the challenges of getting things wrong all the time. And um, a lot of the young people we see are quite vocal about that, of um, their experience and, um, you know, how there has been bullying and they've been called names and actually those places aren't nice. Um, and it feels a very safe and containing place. Like I said, the picture of like the house and um, what people have, it really does feel like that. And the young people make friends really quickly. And, um, you know, we're all there for lots of different reasons and they know that. And it feels a very safe place to be able to explore and to function and to just find out what they're interested in and enjoy their life. Um, you know, young people come to us and they're really scared and, they don't know what to do and they're without their family and um, within hours sometimes they're playing in the playground <laughs> and running around and you wouldn't think there was anything different so it is a really magical place um, and my role kind of blends in I like to be quite um, involved in the sense of um, I do a lot of one-to-ones like I said but also if it's um, a break time I don't need to set up a play session um they are playing they're playing in the playground so I can just observe that and use the like the environment that we've got to on my benefit um, and sometimes that's far more helpful than me setting up like a fake opportunity to to actually engage in meaningful occupation they are doing that I don't need to take them away from that um, so yeah I use a lot of kind of just the power of the routine that we have in on the ward to um, support assessment and treatment I love that idea of a, a naturalistic type setting and getting that real, that real core. This is what they're genuinely like, because like you say, you know, sometimes you could set up the best play opportunity for them and it, you, you wouldn't get as detailed an assessment potentially. Not that it can always go that way. Sometimes, you know, it isn't, you, you know, it can't always be perfect like that. But I'm interested to know about, um, obviously, I'm assuming from what you've said, I've imagined that these children or young people are actually inpatient so they essentially don't have the choice to leave until the treatment's finished and then you're working maybe on transition back home back to school have I got the right end of the stick there yeah the kind of um I feel like um we have quite a thorough assessment process um we have lots of different types of admissions I guess we fully acknowledge that if a young person doesn't want to change or it doesn't feel the right time then we're not going to force them to stay um it's not helpful I, in any sense it's really traumatic um so we 
for example, we've had a young girl at the moment who's been coming for the day and coming home at night. And actually she's working towards staying the night with us, but actually that's really tough in itself. So we can be far more flexible and accommodating um, compared to maybe my experience of um, kind of tier four cams more typically. A lot of the young people I worked with um, kind of in previous roles maybe were detained under mental health act so therefore they didn't have that choice um you know they had to be there for their safety um whereas we do and we're very fluid with it um the one thing we're not so fluid with is um parents staying <laughs> um we have lots of parents who maybe feel like they need to stay with their children and the only time that we do let parents stay is if they're under five um, so if they're under five or not in school under five, we'll, we'll, the parents can stay and um, they, they're also kind of expected to, I guess, to kind of go with the routine. Um, but anyone older than the age of five is expected to stay without a parent and parents come and visit every day. Um, there's lots of different visiting times throughout the day, but that's kind of one thing that's really set in stone. And that's often because... Um, there might be, as well as kind of looking at their functioning, um, we're also, we get a lot of young people who maybe there's lots of um, safeguarding concerns or there's lots of different um, kind of things going on socially. And actually it's useful to have the assessment without parents there as well, but also with parents, we want both. Um, so that's kind of part of it as well. So um, it's really helpful sometimes to have the parents there but also it's helpful to see what they're like without the parents there too mm. yeah definitely so yeah it's it's far more fluid than kind of um a typical cam service um we have young people who maybe have stayed a couple of nights and then said that they they don't want to say anymore and that's absolutely fine and they can come back and try again we usually stay in contact with them and try and support that transition like you said so um we do a lot of work transitions out but also transitions in they're both tough mm, I mean it's, it's it just sounds like a complete dream what you're doing really to me my you know pediatrics is my thing originally so um I'm just super impressed with everything you said it sounds so idealistic and perfect it seems you know it's a shame it's not maybe more commonplace really but mm, um absolutely you know I, I was think there should be every sorry I was going to say I think there should be every county should have a service like ours I really think it's missing and um yeah I'm a huge advocate for just thinking far more holistically and having such a blended service it's great yeah definitely so what do you actually enjoy the most about your role are there sort of going to be challenges involved obviously but is there sure. anything particularly where you're like this is the reason I stay this is why I come into work every day and I just love it um I, I think there's lots of reasons why I stay um, and do those things. Um, I think one one part that maybe I didn't think about before going into this role was um, the challenge of the environment. I think that's it's a massive negative sometimes. So um, although it feels really idealistic, our building is slightly falling apart, I would say. <laughs> and we're not the most um, invested building and that has its challenges too. Um, we, we rely quite a lot on charity and charitable donations to the hospital to, to keep the building up to date. And um, it's not uncommon. We don't have, for example, a leak in the roof or, you know, um, at the moment, the young people are saying the windows are really loud at night and it's impacting on their sleep. And, and they're definitely challenges um, and they impact on 
the amount of work we can do because ultimately the environment isn't completely up to scratch although it's the fact that we have a playground is the absolute lifesaver in all of this um because we use it so much for lots of different um things the other part of my role i guess is is actually on the acute wards and these young people who maybe haven't got to um haven't they've come in as an emergency they might have thought for example that they were having a stroke and actually there's no organic reason why their body isn't moving um and it seemed it kind of looks like it's a psychological reason and you know that's really tough as well um because we don't have any space where we can talk often these young people are on the bay um there's other young people there there's often a screaming baby next to us and it's just not appropriate for me to really talk and um ask them all of kind of about what they think of what's impacting their functioning because it's just not a safe place <laughs> um quite frankly so it's definitely a barrier um i've spent lots of ot sessions um getting milkshakes and sitting on a bench on a park or going to costa because it's the safest and kind of place that's most available to us um, which is unfortunate when I think about it, that um, I think other services I've worked in, there's been far more of a luxury of having a space that's private. Um, but that's kind of also a reality of my role that's really challenging, that that's quite rare. Um, I think another challenge is ultimately that I work in a, such a large acute paediatric hospital um, and there's lots of different medical professions and specialities. And, um, I very much feel sometimes we're the bottom of the pile in terms of psychological mental health. Um, you know, th that we agree that it's not the right environment sometimes for these young people, but the reality is that they're here and sometimes we can't simply discharge them and expect them not to return. Um, so there's a lot more work to be done around that and um, I it, like I said I spend a lot of my role talking to other professionals and um, to parents and um, lots of people involved and I think part of that is because of the challenge that um, there is a real stigma about mental health um, and actually I'm trying to reduce that and part of that is by me building rapport with people and then them feeling like my opinion is a valid one <laughs> in its that sense um, which isn't really an OT role, but also I do think it's a huge part of my role um, because actually that has far more influence if I can, un if others understand the power of occupation and um, the importance of the right environment to support functioning and participation, then that's going to have such a lasting effect on multiple young people compared to a one young person that I might then see one to one for an hour um you know that could have a huge effect on every young person who's in that bed every you know for years um <laughs> if you know they they say actually yes it's important to have a private space or um you know we're going to build a place where teenagers can go and, and do things that's not in bed from the hospital prioritizing my time to do a one-to-one -one. so some just what we're aiming for i guess and um a lot of the young people I see coming to hospital, there's there's a really clear for me um, occupational deprivation. We was uh, I was you just hit something I'm really um, keen on occupational deprivation. No, I'm not keen on that. I'm keen <laughs> on the concept. Yeah, so am I. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it definitely sounds like there's some injustices. And I love the fact you're saying about actually the impact on one person's great, but let's think a bit bigger than that. Let's think more laterally. Let's say hang on a minute, we need a, a bigger change than just yeah. focusing on 
you know, this, um, and of course, the one individual matters, of course they do, but there's also a bigger picture that needs tackling. And I definitely think that's OT's place, 100%. There's so many positives, Gerard, you've just highlighted some really um, interesting, not so positive, but... <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah, I kind of forgot about the positives. Most of the time, I must admit, I feel very positive about my role. I absolutely love it. Like I said, I, I think it's such an ideal, idealistic role. Um, and I feel really proud that I can say that I genuinely believe I work across physical and mental health and take both into consideration. Um, so yeah, I, I, I feel really proud to be in the role and the service I'm in. And you're just about to finish your master's program this summer, so like me in the middle of a pandemic what's it been like studying doing your master's with COVID-19 and lockdowns and probably I'm guessing no face-to-face -face lectures well it's interesting so the course I'm on actually is all online anyway oh, um okay. so so actually um it's been probably really favorable nothing's really changed um which has been fantastic to have some consistency and some predictability um when there's not a lot going around um so we carried on um we yeah nothing we still met online as we did kind of i'm trying to think when covid first happened it was about halfway through the program um and nothing yeah it's not really changed i guess it's made my research easier in some sense because it's been all online i've done my interviews um for my research through teams and recording online um which has meant that i've had um ot's from not just locally but kind of across the uk which has been really fantastic um and i honestly don't think that would have happened without people feeling more confident on teams and um the online world of working um so it's been really great oh so when are you due to finish <laughs> so i've got my research project to submit um kind of in the next month or so <laughs> Oh, so I have delayed it. Yeah, I've had to delay my research because I didn't get ethics till quite late into the programme. Um, and obviously the fact that I'm work full time as well, I think there's just such a, um, a different understanding of the pressures. Um, so, um, so yeah, I'm due to finish kind of as soon as I've submitted my research and my dissertation. Um, that's it then. Oh, well, <laughs> it's literally it. Yeah. I hope it all you I hope you get the results you want I really do it's not an easy thing is it studying no, and working full time that's tough <laughs> no I mean they're really accommodating and the course that I'm on is is aimed at OTs it's aimed at OTs that work in practice and um, we're all OTs and actually my cohort works across um, we're international so there's OTs that are on um, in Agir who work in Greece and um, South Africa and all sorts of places and it's really lovely to have such a, a peer group that it isn't just focusing on kind of the barriers that might be there um, in the UK it's about thinking about what's the barriers kind of more internationally within our practice so it's a real opportunity to reflect um, and it's been really interesting learning about kind of different people's COVID restrictions and what's going on for them and things like that it's been very different oh brilliant well I hope I hope that it all goes smoothly and you get that research in and you just take a, a deep breath a sigh of relief I think thank goodness that's done <laughs> So we've, I mentioned in the intro something that you had sent to me about somatic and psychosomatic symptoms. Now, that sounds complicated and it might make a few people go, oh, but I'm sure it's not. And I wondered if you might expand a little bit on it. Sure. So um, I guess it's worth noting, I feel like I had heard of um, psychosomatic symptoms 
all through my CAMS kind of placements. Um, I think it was really common. Um, and my way of practicing kind of with young people who experience those kind of symptoms now is maybe very different to what I did back then. Um, so I think it's really important to touch on. So um, a somatic experience, I guess, is um, something that, again, might be a physical manifest in a physical way, um, but actually has no organic cause. And by organic, I mean, you know, your brain changing your chemicals in your body and things like that. Um, that's probably there's people listening who think that's definitely not the way to, to describe it so I'm really sorry and I think it's really controversial um, as a symptom as a as a diagnosis um, and in kind of clinical practice it's called lots of different things so like I said when I worked more in a typical CAM service we often used to refer to it as psychosomatic um, these days we refer to within the service I'm working now maybe somatic um, it, or and kind of I guess my experience of working more in the acute um, paediatric world and acute medicine is uh, it's often called functional um, it's a functional illness for example or um, oh they're functional which is really I don't particularly it makes me feel a bit uncomfortable that wording but the reality is that's what people use and I think it's important to identify that too um, so it's kind of all means the same thing and that's that it might have been that there's no organic cause or it could be that the impact on functioning isn't proportionate to the organic cause. So, for example, I see lots of young people who might experience quite chronic pain, but the reason for their pain. Um, so, for example, many years ago, I saw a, a lad who had um, had a rugby injury and injured his wrist. And by the time we saw him, he was in a wheelchair. So you know the the organic pain was um and the fracture was initially in his wrist and the pain has spread to across his body um in a very kind of psychosomatic way um and lots of the young people i guess i see it's to the point where they need hospital admission so it's quite on the severe end um but as humans we all get somatic symptoms well i believe that anyway um i am quite i guess i'm quite a person that experiences somatic symptoms myself um i often think if i've got tummy ache for example is it because i've got something stressful on um you know is it is it a genuine tummy ache or is it my body kind of labeling anxiety and or nerves and i can feel it in a physical way and that's kind of a very mild end of a somatic symptom um and they can be all sorts of kind of things so we see a lot of headaches we see a lot of pain and fatigue um we see like i said just generally um on the extreme and young people who their whole body isn't working um, including being able to speak and that's really scary um, and then to be told or I hope not to be told in this way but sometimes this is the reality of it that there's nothing wrong or that they've heard that there's nothing wrong with their bodies to cause that is really traumatic as well um, and that's why I think my role is such a beauty of one because actually we can support and give a different language it's not that there's nothing wrong with it you know that it's out of nowhere it's the fact that there is something but it's it's your body's way of communicating your distress or um the psychological reasons and um i often use kind of a fizzy coke bottle analogy of you know you might be holding all this anxiety um or or something in your body and it's got to the point where your body can't cope and you know you're you've shaken up the bottle and you're unscrewing it and it just is coming out and you have no control over it 
and some days you might be able to screw the lid back on a bit more and it's tighter and they all kept in but it doesn't mean to say it's disappeared completely and um people's experience of somatic symptoms can really vary so we often find if we take a young person for example to a busy shop um their their, their symptoms might come back a bit more extreme it might be that um you know we see we might observe it so you know we might see that um they're starting to look in pain more or that, that you know one of their legs isn't working how it was before we entered the shop um and our role is about supporting the young person through that but also kind of linking the body and the mind together in the sense of oh i've noticed this you know what have you noticed or, oh, it was really busy in there. What do you think? You know, and starting those conversations. Um, so it's really unique, but also really common. Um, and um, lots of families I work with, when you give kind of the tummy pain at school analogy to people of, you know, it's really common for kids to talk about tummy pain and um, use that as like an avoidance strategy to, you know, school or something difficult that's going on. They kind of get it, but it's just in a, such a bigger extreme way that we see it because ultimately it's led to it's some kind of hospital admission. No, definitely. And I'm, I'm wondering, there's probably going to be people listening to this going, oh my goodness, you know, I'd never even, you know, I'd never even thought about that or I'd never considered that. They might even be in paediatrics themselves. But um, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that it has um, has a fancy name in a way, doesn't it? It feels like it could potentially be a bit more simplified, but you yeah. know, most, most things do have these, these fancy terms, and, don't they? And most young people don't identify with the labels anyway. I, it's very rare that we have a young person saying, you know, it's a somatic illness or, you know, it's usually what you see. Um, mm. So, you know, my leg isn't working yeah. <laughs> and that's how they'll describe it. Um, and in some sense, that can be really positive. And in other sense, that can be really negative because, um, you know, when it's gone on for a long time and people rely on their very medical point of view. Um, so it's quite then hard for people to understand of why that hasn't got better sometimes. Um, so, yeah, again, that's kind of part of my role of, of that transition out of hospital, of giving people that understanding. So a lot of the work I do, for example, is around schools and colleges about explaining how the symptoms might not go away. Um, it's not a go away thing. It's just about managing them. And in times of stress, they might pop up again because that's been really helpful in the past. But actually, we're trying to challenge our view and our thoughts about that and still participate in what's important um, rather than let that symptom kind of get in the way and take over um and for a lot of that young kind of a lot of my experience working with young people that results in them being in bed a lot of the time and then feeling really isolated and lonely and low in mood and subsequently then it, it can turn into more of a mental health thing <laughs> um in the sense of um kind of complexities in terms of anxiety and depression etc very complex it very is complex. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so Laura, I think this might link in actually, but I need you to talk to me about sensory integration because I've got such a keen interest in this area of occupational therapy. And uh, I would just love to open up a discussion with you surrounding this. So looking at your training, how you potentially implement it within your daily practice. Um, I'm a real believer in the fact I've seen the benefits of it in real time, in mm -hmm. real life. It bothers me, the evidence base, 
and then flip it over again because I seem to I go round and around in a circle with this flip it over again and actually the evidence base is the outcome so it's a bit it's a tricky one right do you feel the same way or are you completely in one camp no (laughs) no I'm not at all and I really sit on the fence um so I guess it's worth noting um I've never really this is most paediatric I've been in terms of a job um so I feel like my experience of sensory integration has always come from a mental health point of view um which I feel really lucky because I feel like it's very current and um, lots of um, mental health services, adult and adolescent, are using sensory integration strategies. Um, but yeah, that was that was over ten years ago that experience for me. Um, so I feel really privileged that that was part of my training. Um, so my training started in kind of like I said, forensic cams. So that was my newly first newly qualified post, um, and we used sensory integration a lot I would say we generally used it um, around supporting regulation so self-harm or just distress um, and our whole unit used sensory integration strategies it wasn't just us as an OT team it was very embedded into the service um, and then I moved to the kind of other roles and, and subsequently the role I'm in at the moment and my training took a bit of a pause and that's mainly I feel like because um, of funding of my training Um, so I've had lucky that I've had um, services fund my training and also I've had services not fund my training and I've had to pay for it too so it's been a real mishmash of how I've accrued kind of enough money to 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 do my training Um, I guess in the service I'm in now Um, it's really hard Um, we spend a lot of time looking at young people's regulation and um, in sensory integration world that's called reactivity now it used to be called modulation um, but their reactivity how they respond to different um, senses Um, and I try and push that and challenge that and look at kind of the bigger picture of sensory integration which is that praxis and so how your body moves how you plan and think of ideas and how you execute them and so how you, you actually then get your body to do those things Um, We see lots of young people who maybe have very heightened sensations. So, um, for example, um, I've seen a young person many years ago now and they're massively pro as a family OT um, and they've been on the hunt for the perfect OT privately before going to an NHS services. Um, So when they came to us for assessment, I always really, really clearly remember them saying to us, we just want an OT who understands mental health, who also gets... Um, um, her, her diagnosis was chronic fatigue and she was in bed and she was using a mobility scooter at the time and they just wanted a CAMS OT who got it and not an OT that wanted to give them equipment um, which I thought was really upsetting <laughs> but she came to us and, and subsequently she doesn't use a mobility scooter now she's in full-time school she's looking at what sixth form she goes to now and all these things um, and at the time um, before her mission she was um, experiencing quite um, strong she used to wear glasses um, because she couldn't tolerate the sun um, she spent a lot of time in bed like I said with the curtains drawn she was really sensitive to light um, she also was really sensitive to touch and she used to feel hallucinations where as creepy crawlies were like crawling all over her and I think in my role um, kind of going back to it now um, 
it can be quite easy to get carried away with sensory integration. Um, it, I could have gone with that and we could have explored all sorts of things to do with that um, hypersensitivity she was experiencing. But actually, we, we kind of needed to treat the functioning first and then kind of get to a point where what what kind of reassess and go what what is impacting still or is there anything impacting still and for this young person there actually wasn't um i'm not saying that's the case all the time with the young people i see but i think there's particular young people who come in particularly with somatic um symptoms who we kind of need to get an understanding of that first before jumping in with sensory integration and um, because i feel like we could do a lot of work around hypersensitivity for example and um then it kind of disappears very quickly and then you're left with actually their body almost like in a regulated state and not a dysregulated state and they don't experience the same the same hypersensitivity that they did in fact it was kind of part of the illness um but also we have young people who come in who that is a genuine problem and impacting functioning and for those young people i gen mostly focus on praxis these days and seeing if there's any underlying cause um and often there is there's often real clear barriers um with their kind of planning and how they execute movement that um my hypothesis as an ot impacts on their functioning um so um whether that's um their toileting and their challenges around toileting and subsequently leading to severe constipation um, whether that's um, not having kind of adequate oral motor skills as part of a praxis and then again subsequently that leading to um, having challenges eating and vomiting and needing an NG tube so it can be lots of different things it's an important skill I feel to have um, but it's definitely not something I use all the time and um, I would say most of the time I practice again i feel like i could get shot by other ot's than this but this is the reality of it um is very top down um in the sense of focusing on participation and you know providing opportunity to participate um before then looking kind of from a bottom-up point of view of what are the skills involved in that and it's only like i said when there's real challenges still in in terms of participation that we then look at that bottom-up approach and, and think about it from a different point of view um, but as a service generally we're very pro bottom uh, bottom down top up um yeah that's it isn't it i'm getting confused in my mind but top up approaches um first before then looking at actually is there anything else so i do sit on the fence with sensory integration um i definitely don't use it all the time um but my experience has been that it's been really life-changing for some young people um i think it's also been incredibly useful sometimes to rule out if it's a sensory integration difficulty um often i think we get a lot of families who who it's very easy to say it's a sensory thing um you know it's a sensory problem and actually we might explore that and it's not but the label is it hasn't been challenged or thought about from the person who's got the expertise in that or the team or the service that have the expertise in that so um yeah i guess it's part of us understanding and formulating um and seeing what are the barriers to occupation um well definitely for my role i'm sure the team would agree that we're looking at how they function and participate um so yeah it's just one tool in the toolbox 
um, but an expensive tool <laughs> to use. Um, and I also have challenges, I guess, um, like you said about the evidence base. Um, and it's not necessarily that I don't agree or disagree with the evidence base, because I know that a lot of the young people I work with, that it's very specialist and there might not be the evidence base out there to prove what we're doing is correct or um, scientific. But it's more the challenge I have about then how these young people might get long term support. Um, and I, I kind of have almost an ethical dilemma then in the sense of do I start it and think if there is these challenges, how am I going to refer to elsewhere? Or do we just not do that and and think about it from another point of view and, you know, go down a more, you know, let's think about participation more generally. Um, a lot of the services um, locally to us don't, don't will not, um, they're not commissioned anymore to look at sensory integration. And sometimes the young people I see don't reach the thresholds for the services. Um, so it's a real challenge and they don't fit under paediatrics and they don't fit under mental health either. Um, so they really truly sit in the middle of services and um, it's really isolating and lonely and, contrib and contributes to, you know, their health being poor um, in that sense too. So yeah, it's, it's a real challenge. Um, but I do use it. <laughs> um, but I also use lots of other strategies as well, as I've mentioned, lots of different assessments and lots of different tools. Um, it's just one tool. Do you know what? It is absolute music to my ears hearing you say what you just said, because it sensory integration has 100% got its place. However, I'm not quite so convinced in this country, particularly where we've got the NHS, that it is a sustainable, should we say, resource, like you're saying, to implement, to then essentially, if you can't afford to pay for it, have dropped. Yeah. That's one of my biggest, yeah, ethical is a good way to put it, I feel. Um, so yeah, oh, I'm, I'm so, I'm, I'm gonna listen back to that at least twice. Because I'm just so interested in what you just said. It's um, it's not. I've been I've been toying with this for so long now. I'm sort of going back and forth and round in circles. But I don't know if I ever get to um the bottom of grappling with it. But I need to um maybe have a break from it and come yeah, back to it in absolutely. a few months' time. And I and I genuinely, you know, my experience, has, like I said, it hasn't been traditional in the sense of I've mostly applied sensory integration strategies and techniques within mental health, which I know is very trendy these days, and it kind of it feels like up and coming, or maybe it is already here um but at the same time um it yeah it's not the only strategy it really isn't and i very firmly believe that i'm an ot first so if it doesn't impact on functioning and um it doesn't influence kind of meaningful occupation then actually it's not something we're going to look at but if we do think that then you know then that's the justification um but it's about participation first and occupation and um all those things um and like you said i just feel quite strongly as well that some of the families i see are in a very lucky position where they might be able to afford privately to do that um but why should then um you know i only assess those young people or what happens to the families that can't afford that or maybe they um we see lots of families for example where um parents might have a learning disability or a cognitive impairment themselves and the child subsequently doesn't have a learning disability but might um communicate like they do because that's how they've been brought up or mm. they actually do might have kind of some cognitive concerns that we're, we've highlighted but um 
you know to then navigate that system is a whole other challenge in itself and um a lot of the families i work with don't have the resources to do that mm. and that bothers, bothers me that's what bothers yeah, that me bothers me too mm. um so yeah i feel quite you know and i think the families that i do um have that maybe are more kind of those kind of families I have a lot longer on my caseload. I often see them as outpatients. I often have to have multiple phone calls with paediatric services about picking them up. Um, I've had to talk to commissioners before and really fight for, you know, it, it's gone past the point of my job role because of the injustice that they could experience. Um, so yeah, it is a challenge and I, I feel really odd about it. I guess there's also um, lots of diagnosis. I know I've spoken about sleep a bit in, that um, there's a particular sleep disorder that I see a lot of and often we do sensory integration assessment with them and so there's a sleep disorder called rhythmic movement disorder um, so I often see young people who have um, a diagnosis or potential diagnosis of rhythmic movement disorder because they're using movement to in sleep or they're using movement to get to sleep so on the onset of sleep um, so actually to explore whether it's um, again something that is underlying kind of that rhythmic movement disorder or and to rule out if it's a sensory integration thing or not sometimes it's not but um you know we've had lots of young people who sleep's a huge thing because if we're sleep deprived it impacts our functioning in the day so we have to get it right and i don't think we think about that enough as um ot's you know it's quite lots of people really struggle with sleep and deprivation mm -hmm. experience anyone who's had a child knows the the, the, the deprivation to to just functioning um in that newborn stage and again lots of the families we see their child might be older than newborn stage you know they might be eight nine years old but sleeping you know a couple of hours in the night or waking up continuously um all this the the social situation doesn't support sleep so we often have families who um you know there's five six siblings in one room or they're sharing with mum um because there's no other beds in the house you know the deprivation impacts on their functioning in other ways but we have the opportunity to assess that and um, ask those questions i guess mm very complex it's um on the surface it seems idyllic and then you just do a little tiny scratch and you suddenly yeah. <laughs> realize you're falling down a 50 foot hole somewhere. yeah and it's really hard <laughs> to say when the end is because there isn't a clear end sometimes either so um we have to be really boundaried and i think that's the beauty of us working very closely as an mdt um so a multidisciplinary team because we can support each other it's not uncommon for example we go but we want to help more and um, we've got a, a very boundary paediatrician who goes, but this is what we said we would do. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is what we said we would do as a service or stick to these the, are the goals. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's it. Yeah, You're yeah. not we can't be around forever. Mm. um so it's unfortunate but we support each other in that and there's times that we definitely have to then um kind of support our medical um whether it's our psychiatrists or our pediatricians to go no these were the goals we set out and this is what we're going to do mm. um so yeah we try and support each other in being boundaried that's tough though because we're all human and yeah. you know sometimes being human can be tough when you want to think but and we care not. we yeah. genuinely care that's why we, we wouldn't choose to work in the service if we didn't 
and we have sometimes a lot of young people saying to us well um you know you're only here because you're getting paid to be here and that is true to some extent but also I could work somewhere else and get paid I didn't have to work here <laughs> you mm -hmm. know there's easier jobs mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I'm quite frank with the older ones about that as well that you know it's my choice to work here <laughs> um I could go and work it you know I don't know I could work in a shop I could work anywhere um but I've chosen to work here so yeah I am getting paid you're right but you know I don't have to be paid to work here <laughs> I could I could work somewhere else I'm loving the honesty you're giving them there oh yeah yeah because <laughs> what else like they're right we are getting paid um but you know it's about enlightening them to but I wouldn't be here if if it was just about me making money you know we're all and I think lots of people who work in NHS and other kind of organizations about health um, and well-being we're there because we care about you know we haven't gone into it because of the money we've gone into it because we want to support people exactly and I'm gonna end on my final question today Laura <laughs> I'm excited with this one would you be able to recommend either a book film article website or other media to our listeners that you feel is currently worth knowing about or catching up on um, so I tried my hardest. I, I'm, I'm not the biggest reader, I must admit, other than like my university stuff, I, I really find it hard to read um, personally. Um, and I was trying my hardest to find something that was about psychosomatic symptoms to help kind of um, the listeners understand about it more. And I know there are films about it, but I've not watched them. So I don't want to recommend them in case they do a really rubbish representation of them. Um, but what I am going to recommend is a book that I have read. Um, let me I've got it up on my screen. So I remember the name of it. So it's called The Body Keeps the Score. Um, and it's by a guy called Van der Kolk and it's a very well-known book um, that's around trauma and its impact on the mind and the body um, and I thought maybe that was more fitting um, for everything talking about I, I think a lot about attachment and trauma behind a lot of the young people I see sometimes it's before they've even disclosed those things are happening um, so I think it was really relevant and um, I know lots of um, people who have um, been unfortunate enough to experience trauma in their life and experience that disconnection between mind and body and so that's what I'm going to recommend and I think it's a brilliant book um, I've used yes. it as a reference academically but it's not an academically written book um, but it's a great read and you know what? I've read it. I agree. I absolutely love it. It's definitely got to be up there in my top 10. For yeah, sure. it's great. It's absolutely great. I'm so glad that kind of books like that exist. I don't feel like they did um, kind of years and years ago. Um, me and my husband often um, talk about kind of the developments between kind of attachment trauma um, that's happened in the last 10 years. And it just didn't exist. And now there's lots of theories and lots of reading you can do. Um, and ultimately it's a it, it can impact lots of different services it's not just the child and adolescent there's lots of people who access services who experience lots of different types of trauma um so it can be applied to lots of different settings i love how we get such a good variety in all different topics and areas and all sorts so yeah i'm sure um i'm sure that people that have read it will know it's good and hopefully inspire a few more people to read it as well but i had listened um on the way um back from work today um i was listening i've been listening to podcasts in the car and um louis theroux has um done a podcast series over lockdown i think called grounded and i was particularly listening to one um by sia the mu musician mm. and that's also really useful because she talks 
about her somatic symptoms and how she um, identifies that she's got somatic symptoms that she experiences um, relating to her trauma that she's experienced throughout her life too. Um, and it was just really interesting hearing um, her view of um, kind of how her mind and body have connected together and how she's gone on a journey to understand the link between kind of the mind and body. Every, like I said, I don't read a lot and actually I much prefer listening to podcasts these days. And it was just such a narrative um, experience um, about her sharing her trauma, but also just like I said, linking kind of to her uh, somatic symptoms, her anxiety, um, she um, had quite a lot of um, she experienced lots of alcoholism and um, drug abuse over the years as well and um, she very much felt that was a way to escape and disconnect her mind and body when it felt uncomfortable um, so yeah it was very interesting I'll stick that in the show notes but thank you so much for coming That's on right. and talking to us today I feel like we've we've packed so much content into this it's going to be one of those ones again I'm just going to have to listen to a good couple of times to get my head around everything and sort of absorb it all in but thank you so much for coming on the show brilliant thank you well I certainly feel like I know a lot more about the CAMS OT role in paediatrics as I'm sure you could tell one of the highlights of this discussion for me was talking sensory integration and the the kind of imagery it created talking with Laura about the setting and the, the sort of range of young people that she comes across as part of her role. I have, as always, uploaded the details of Laura's recommendation to the show notes. And there's also her details if you want to reach out to Laura on social media. She is on Twitter and as always, I don't think I've mentioned it as much recently in my episodes, but I love, love, love getting feedback from you all. And I always do pass it on to the guests. And I know when I'm interviewing the guests and I say to them, if I get any feedback, I'll get straight back to you with it. And they also really do appreciate it. So maybe if you had a question or you wanted to potentially know a little bit more get in touch with me you can email me directly on ot what's your focus at gmail.com you can also reach out to me on both twitter and instagram details are in the show notes for this and we're hopefully making this ot world a little bit bigger this episode is going live i believe three days before i'm presenting at the annual conference with Kweku from the OT in Chill podcast. So if you are attending the annual conference this year, then drop in, say hi to us. We're doing a roundtable live session. So our slot is from 5pm until 5.30. We'd love to get as many as you involved as we can. It's all about podcasts, the joy of podcasts, how we see podcasts as an occupation, logging your podcast as valid CPD and how to do that if you're not too sure. So if you do listen to the show and you think, oh, I've listened to loads of podcasts, I've never put it down as CPD, drop in, come and see us, and we have got plenty of hints, tips and ideas, and even support and information to get you started with your own podcast, because it really is achievable. So if it's even in the tiniest little bit of your mind, come and say hi and pick up some tips. So until next time, have a great couple of weeks. <laughs>